Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is The Lightning of Possible Storms, a collection of short fiction that reads like a novel. It includes stories about a mad scientist trying to steal his son's dreams, a story where a personification of capitalism is trying to impress his boss by winning a contest at work, a story about a Hollywood producer who just decides to adapt a bunch of explosions, uh, and many other stories, some funny, some terrifying. Salima Nawaz uh, says that is cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. Suzette Mayer says it's beautifully written and expertly composed. And I say, uh, it's time you read this book. I've been working on it for almost 20 years, and I'm excited to share it with you. So please go to possiblestorms.com. Again, that's possiblestorms.com, and you'll find out a lot more about this book and some of the bonuses that you can get when you buy this book. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. My name is John Taves, and I'm the event coordinator at McNally Robinson Booksellers in Winnipeg. We're broadcasting live from Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. First off, I am very grateful to all of you for joining us tonight for the celebratory online launch of Jonathan Ball's The Lightning of Possible Storms. I've long been a fan of Ball's work. In fact, the launch of his first collection, Ex Machina, was one of my own earliest events. Uh, that book was published by Bookhug, who are also responsible for unleashing Ball's latest on the world. All of you who are familiar with his work will know to expect the unexpected when cracking the spine of this new book. It's a phantasmagoric and unsettling collection shot through with his signature pitch black humor and some highly evocative and affecting writing. The procedure for this evening itself is very simple. After I've introduced both Jonathan Ball and your host, Stuart Ross, I'll leave them there to chat about the book's uh, contents. Uh, you'll notice that there's a Q&A option at the bottom of the screen, which is right there. Uh, please feel free to click that button at any time if a question does occur to you. Now, I'll just introduce both of tonight's participants. Jonathan Ball is the author of eight books, including Ex Machina, Clockfire, and The National Gallery. He lives in Winnipeg and has won many awards, including a Manitoba Book Award for Most Promising Manitoba Writer. He hosts Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. You can visit him online at jonathanball.com. Your host, Stuart Ross, is a writer, editor, writing teacher, and publisher. He is the winner of the 2019 Harborfront Festival Prize for his contributions to Canadian literature. He's the author of 20 books of fiction, poetry, and essays, including, most recently, Motel of the Opposable Thumbs, which was published by Anvil Press. Stewart was the 2010 Writer-in-Residence at Queen's University. Through his imprints at Mansfield Press, uh, 2017, or 20, 2007 to 2017, and Anvil, uh, 2018 to present, he has mentored many first-time authors and worked with dozens of mid-career and senior authors. His poetry has been translated into French, Ninorsk, 
uh, Slovene, Russian, Spanish, and Estonian. Stuart is joining us from Coburg, Ontario. Please put your virtual hands together and warmly welcome Stuart Ross and Jonathan Ball. Hello, hello. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, John, and it's good to see you, Jonathan. Yeah, nice to see you. And uh, thanks. Uh, hi, everybody. I can see a lot of names. I hear my daughter's in there. My dad's there. Uh, you know, I can see lots of great people. So thanks. Right. I appreciate it. Suzette, my my hero, <laughs> is in there. Ah. Suzette Mayer. Cool. But yeah, well, thanks well. for coming, everybody. So, Jonathan, um, you know, I edit a lot of books and I edit a uh, hideous books and great books and romance novels and uh and uh, maybe every three or four books out of ten are like books that i take such pleasure in and wish i had written myself which is always my thing i wish i had written that book myself editing your book was a real real let's pull that up there again a real profound pleasure it felt a lot like having a conversation with you aside from the actual conversations we had which also felt a bit like having a conversation with you and I find the book challenging. I find the book mind-bending, a little mind-boggling. And I really, really admire the thing I think I admire most is the wildly different things you accomplish just within these two covers. The weird micro-stories, the different kinds of personas, the different kinds of narratives, the, the meta on top of the meta on top of the meta. So this was a blast to work with. Uh, could you tell me, can you pinpoint the very first thing you wrote that ended up becoming part of this book. Absolutely. In 2001, I wrote a story, the story called The Dark Part of the Sky. I wrote it for George Tolles's, uh, if anybody knows George Tolles in the universe, in Winnipeg, is uh, he's best known as a screenwriter for Guy Madden's movies, or many of Guy Madden's movies. But he was my uh, professor in University of Manitoba uh, doing my you know, fil English and film studies. And I took his class on um, film and literature, it was called. Uh, it was you know, where we read books or stories, and then we watched film adaptations of them or films that were kind of inspired by them and you know, so on and so forth. And, and he, he had a very unorthodox way of teaching in class. And one of the assignments, for one of the assignments, instead of doing an essay, he let me write the short story. Um, and uh, I was always looking for you know, ways to kind of, as I put it, bend the university to my will in, in the program. And um, so anyway, I, ended up, I wrote the first draft of The Dark Part of the Sky as an essay in, in place of an essay for George Tolles' class. And he was, you know, one of the most encouraging people, you know, that I've ever had in terms of my writing. And uh, he's very enthusiastic. He really helped me out in a lot of ways. I ended up going on to do an MA with him and, and, and so on. And actually, the other project I'm working on in my daily life right now is a comic book series that is um, based on a thing I wrote for George for my MA thesis. But, but anyway, to that Dark Part of the Sky, I then later uh, ended up uh, taking drafts of it. Over and over the years, I just rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Uh, it didn't change really that much except stylistically. Um, but I, I, you know, David Bergen at one point gave me a bunch of feedback when he was the writer in residence and, and it was the oldest thing that kind of carried through to, um, to now, although a number of the stories are also quite old. Some of them are so super new as you, as you know, Stuart, one of them I actually wrote after I booked hug had already accepted the manuscript and we kind of slotted it in afterwards, uh, the story capitalism. So that would be the, the most recent thing was capitalism. Um, and then the. But the first one was back in 2001, uh, The Dark Part of the Sky. 
Do you mind reading a little bit of that um, piece? I, I love that first sentence so much, and it, it gets better from there. Well, why don't I actually read you know, a little bit from that and also a little bit from capitalism? Because then you'll really see yeah. like just the style difference in the book. And also, uh, that's a 19-year uh, difference, right? Which I think is kind of interesting. Um, so let me just quickly find... Uh, I, I changed the order of these stories at one point. So <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta look at the table of contents here. Okay, nine, nine. So this is from the dark part of the sky. So this again, this earlier, an earlier draft, this would have been the first thing I wrote that ended up in this book. I'll just read a couple, uh, uh, a couple of sections from this. My earliest memories of socks, my feet bare, my mother scolding. The socks were a day old, a present from my grandparents, a day old and already ruined by my mother's standards. A mother's expectations are higher than a child could ever dream. Is a miracle that they continue to love. The world is full of holes. They appear in socks, they eat through leaves, they arise in the ether itself, blossoming and elastic in the spaces between things. They flourish in our memories. The past is not the past at all, existing only in photographs and half-remembered, half-invented utterances. The look on my mother's face, the trembling in her voice. Reality is threatening to consume itself and with it, us. Bend your knees, say your prayers, beg forgiveness. Sunday morning, mother awakened my brother and me without fuss, breathing our names on the backs of our necks. David, she said, a fine mist drifting down. I turned to her, eyes blurry with sleep, but she's already gone. Bending down to my sleeping brother in the lower bunk, Joshua. Even so early, she sported her Sunday best. Come now, you can't sleep all day. Uh, we long to prove her wrong. And then I'm just going to skip ahead here uh, to a what kind of the story is about, which is this infestation of caterpillars. So this is a fictional story, but the one sort of true thing about it, quote unquote, is when I was very, very young living in Brussels, Ontario, in Southern Ontario, um, there was this one year I remember distinctly, there was a massive swell of tent caterpillars. It was like a, I don't, I don't remember the truth or the detail of it, but it felt to me like they were just everywhere. I remember seeing street signs. You could barely read the street signs because there were so many caterpillars on them. And it was just like this, you'd almost like, it was slick the sidewalks, it was slick with like guts of caterpillars. It was just this kind of weird uh, moment. Um, so, you know, uh, there's just a part where these kids run into the um, garage and the caterpillars start kind of raining off it. And I remember like something like that particular, like caterpillars falling on me happening. Um, uh, so, you know, I just found that a kind of a gross and weird thing. Um, I'm just going to jump, though, to capitalism, though, just to start that story. So this is the, the the kind of style difference here. You'll see very quickly, I've gone from, like, heavy kind of dense metaphor-laden story to, like, the style's not that way at all, but now I'm actually, the personification of capitalism is the main character. I'll read a bit longer of this part because this is my, my most favorite thing at the moment since it's the most recent thing I wrote. We know capitalism hates mornings because he always forgets his travel mug and has to give his name at Starbucks. Capitalism brought the travel mug just to avoid this horror. Why he forgets the mug remains a mystery. He wakes at 4 a.m. and goes through a morning routine designed by a life consultant that takes over two hours, after which capitalism brims with energy and ideas. You would think somewhere in there he would remember the mug, but he always forgets it, even though his mind is sharp, even though he never tires. He forgets it without fail, so has to give his name at Starbucks. He cannot bear to give his real name, not to these energy vampires, so he offers some fake name, a different one each time. Carrie, Carmichael, Crane. 
He tries to have fun with it. Johan, Job, Susan, Tripoli, Thor. He offers stranger and stranger names to blander and blander baristas. Rumpelstiltskin, Rutabaga, Rin Tin Tin, Roger Dodger, Rick Roll. The baristas never react. They just write the name down. Capitalism hates them. It considers a different coffee house, considers a Keurig. But who is he kidding? He's capitalism. He goes to Starbucks every day, many times each day. Capitalism needs coffee. Sometimes he gives three different names throughout the day to the same person who just writes the name down. The worst part somehow is not that nobody reacts. It's that nobody ever misspells capitalism's fake name. So, Thank you very much. Yeah, that is a quite a... Quite a, a wide stream to step across from that first story to the most recent story. Um, so what happened? I don't want to give away too much about uh, the way this book is uh, structured, but I will. Um, in that there's all these uh, separate, it's, it's, it's called a book of short stories somehow. And there's all these short stories. And in between the stories is this other story that's going along uh, based around uh, a character who basically finds the, this book in a cafe. Um, so what I wanted to ask you is you wrote that first story and you rewrote it and rewrote it. And then you wrote other stories. At what point did you realize that this was going to be something other than a collection of short stories? So, um, that would have been, again, so I started, I wrote the first story around 2001, about 2007, roughly, uh, when I was in the kind of middle of the PhD program there, uh, I I felt I, I had enough stories I could have published a collection, but um, I just I didn't I kept putting it them into like arrangements, and I kept kind of looking at the arrangements, and I would you know put them on my floor, and I would move the shuffle them around, and the thing that kept happening was I saw that I had enough material for a book, but it didn't feel like a book. Uh, that no matter how I arranged it or rearranged it, the stories were so disparate. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had more material than I needed for a book. So uh, like I've written stories that aren't in this book, right? And so one of two things would happen with every one of my arrangements. I would arrange them either stories that fit together, either because they had the same set of themes, or they were the same type of story or, or what have you. As soon as I had a bunch of stories that felt like they fit together, um, I was dissatisfied because they were too the same. I just felt like I've got very as well as my stories are, I have very few preoccupations. You know, I like to write about people trapped in a situation. Uh, I like to write about uh, three or four characters. You know, I don't like to have, I rarely write stories with more than two, three characters. You know, I like to write about uh, reality shifting and changing. Like I, I, I've got a set of things that I do again and again, but then I've got like a varied approach to them. And so, uh, if you anyway, I had one sort of version of the book was always stories that just felt too much alike. But then the other version of the book where it was just didn't seem like a book at all. Like it seemed like there's no connection with these things. Why even put them in a book? And then the other thing that dissatisfied me, there's like a third thing I was dissatisfied with, which was no matter what arrangement of any of stories I I put together, I didn't know where I should stop, or in the sense that it always felt arbitrary to cut them off and it didn't feel like um, it just didn't feel like a book to me because I see myself as a person who is very interested in putting together like, a, like if I'm going to put two covers to between like things between two covers, 
I want to, there to be a reason why it's these things and not other things. I want there to be a reason why it's starting and ending in this respect. So my constant dissatisfaction with my own work and also with just short story books I read is um, I, I want to see build across the book. Like the one thing I like about a novel, uh, one of the things I like about the novel is that you have a build throughout it. Um, and as you're getting closer to the end of the novel, the pace is picking up. And there's other sort of things like that happening, but I never see that happening in short story books. I've seen maybe a handful of short story books that have done that successfully. Um, so Tony Burgess's Ravenna Gets is one. Mm -hmm. uh, Natalie Capel's um, uh, How I Came to Haunt My Parents is one. Uh, but there's very few short story books that actually have that quality uh, where as you're kind of going through the book, the pace is increasing and it's becoming, it's, it feels like it's approaching a conclusion Mm -hmm. uh, in a manner of speaking. Usually they just do a trick, like uh, put a, a longer story at the end or something, like a, you could put a novella at the end or something. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, you know, I, almost, I don't have stories that long. Like I don't like to write very long stories. So um, it, it just wasn't really, I didn't like the fact that it was not feeling like a novel, even though it was a short story book. <laughs> so there was no reason for it to feel like a novel. So it was kind of like a weird, it was a weird complaint, but it was my complaint that I had about my own book that wasn't even written yet. Uh, and then I was also having that thematic thing where it just felt like there, there were too much the same or they were too different. And I was trying to think of how could I have my cake and eat it too and solve all these problems. And I hit upon, and then I ended up reading, I read Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And if you read that book, he alternates in between chapters of somebody who's reading the book and telling you about how you're reading this book and all these things that are happening to mm -hmm. you as you try to track down a copy of Calvino's book, which is not flawed. And then every second chapter is this first chapter of an imaginary book. So I kind of, I really like that structure. And I was thinking maybe I could steal something like that structure for this short story book where I could have this build, but also effectively you've got alternating, uh, instead of chapters, I was going to have maybe just different stories kind of thing. Uh, and then, um, so I kind of like cribbed that idea a little bit. Uh, and then also you, Stuart, um, came to Calgary in this period to launch Buying Cigarettes for the Dog, uh, which is a, a short story book that I really loved. And I remember, I like the crackling energy of that book and a lot of the stories in that book. So I ended up kind of uh, writing a bunch of new stories around that time, sort of because trying to sort of mimic your, um, your kind of rapid fire pace and style. Mm. Like I went in a different direction with it, but the, the story um, Nightmare Ballad of the Drunken Brand Identity with a cameo by Shakespeare in a title that cannot get worse. <laughs> so that story is directly like coming out of uh, you writing Buying Cigarettes for the Dog oh, and me okay. kind of, um, you know, wanting to kind of steal certain tricks from that book, if that makes sense. Maybe I'll just read it. I love that story too. So if you don't mind, I'll read like a, just a little section from sure. that. Because this is one of my favorite things that I've ever written. The Nightmare Ballad of the Drunken Brand Identity with a cameo by Shakespeare and a tale that cannot get worse. So I'm going to skip to like a middle part of the book the story where um, this guy, what is happening in the story is this, there's this character, you. Sometimes it's you, sometimes it's he. He it can't stabilize uh, who, who this character is. Um, uh, he, you know, but... Um, He's sort of drinking himself to death or trying to, but it's not working fast enough. Um, he's has sort of suffered this trauma. We don't know what the trauma is till the end of the story. Um, but he's um, sort of trying to destroy himself. But meanwhile, he's working at this 
marshmallow fat company. And his specific job at the marshmallow company is that he has to uh, try to sell marshmallows to teens uh, that are going to use them for sex somehow. Uh, so that's like his specific job. So at one point he starts, he, 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 he creates a task force to come up with a new brand for this marshmallow product, <laughs> a new kind of branding identity. Uh, and this guy, Bob, who's his rival at work, he cuts out of the task force because it was Bob's idea initially. And he stole the idea and cut Bob out of the task force. So there's a, peer, a, a great moment here. Jesse's on this, um, in this chat here, my daughter, Jesse. And at the time I wrote the story, she, I was kind of thinking back to your book. This is a number of years later, though. I was finally getting the strap to work like years later. And uh, Jesse at the time was in her high school or grade school or high school, high school classes reading King Lear. Um, so I just had King Lear on my mind and Shakespeare in my head, you know, because of talking to her about Shakespeare. Uh, so I'm just going to read this one section that is my favorite section where Bob comes into his office to confront him about what he's just done, which he can't remember anything he's been doing lately because he's been so drunk. He's like blackout drunk constantly. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He can barely stabilize enough to describe what he's doing to the reader. Um, but then Bob comes in and he wakes up in his room again. Uh, I'm just going to skip down here. Um, I need a name, you decide. Maybe a name would help sort out all this you he crap. What was your name before everything happened? It doesn't matter, you suppose, that name is gone. You need a new name, maybe Bob, but that name's taken already by Bob, who walks into your office. Bob has come to bitch about how you stole his idea and started the task force and then didn't let him be on the task force. What's worse and more of an insult is that your task force just seems to be a list of fictitious names rather than other employees that you've wrangled. In fact, your task force looks a lot like the character list from King Lear. You don't remember sending any memo. That's ridiculous. I agree, it's ridiculous. Why would I just copy out the character list of King Lear and distribute that as my task force memo roster? I don't know, but this sure looks like the character list from King Lear. Bob turns the memo towards you. To whom it may concern, from task force captain. Subject, task force member list for reference. Captain, Cordelia, daughter to Lear. Coran, courtier, doctor, Duke of Albany, Duke of Burgundy. Duke of Cornwall, Earl of Gloucester, Earl of Kent, Edgar, son of Gloucester, Edmund, bastard son to Gloucester, fool, gentleman, Goneril, daughter to Lear, Harold, king of France, knight, Lear, king of Britain, messenger, old man, tenant to Gloucester, Oswald, steward to Goneril, Reagan, daughter to Lear, servant one, servant two, servant three, CC, Bob. Bob, why are you wasting my time with this shit? Just let me be on the task force. I will do all the work and you can take most of the credit. I just want like some of the credit. No dice. I refuse to budge an inch on this. You're not the only asshole that read Shakespeare. I know that he invented that phrase. Well, then we've come full circle. Why are you fucking with me? Truth will out. The game is up. Quit it. Bob, you're losing it. A task force memo that is just the cast list of King Lear. A conversation where I keep quoting Shakespeare just to be an asshole. It doesn't make sense. It's an improbable fiction. You know I have a PhD in Shakespeare, right? You must know. This is your way of reminding me how my life sucks because I'm working at a fucking marshmallow company since the academic job market is shit. Why are you being such a jerk? What did I do to you? Though this be madness, yet there is method in it. You stand and make a show of putting on your jacket, which you actually forgot to bring to work, so you just mime putting on a jacket. You didn't even try that time. Parting is such sweet sorrow. And with a little salute and a wave, you're out the door, 
leaving a sweaty bob behind. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> it's really exciting working on a book editorially and then finally hearing the author read those words aloud that you've, you've read over so many times. It's fabulous. Great selection. Um, oh, thanks. So one of the things that got me, there's a, there's a question here, which I'm going to get to in a moment that someone put up. But, uh, and again, I don't want to share any spoilers here, but it fascinates me that in this very meta piece of fiction, there is this character, Aaliyah, the barista, who finds the book sitting on a table. This guy comes in, writes all the time, and he leaves, and he always gets the same thing. And then he leaves the book behind and she picks it up. And uh, I don't know if you can read it. For Aaliyah, who will learn why. So Aaliyah becomes this character weaving in and out of the, not in and out of the stories, in between some of the stories. And what really got to me was how incredibly much I came to care about Aaliyah's fate in this, this meta meta sort of non-existent character outside of characters. Um, and a book filled with so many voices and personas. I mean, she was the one who I was, it was just uh, more than anyone else, just rooting for, you know? What, what characters did you find yourself uh, um, um, identifying with in this book, if any? Well, well, before I ask that question, I just want to, quickly say that I think part of the reason that that Aaliyah stuff works is due to you because when I first submitted this book the Aaliyah stuff was very much more fractured uh, it was sort of like Aaliyah a story Aaliyah a story Aaliyah a story and then you had the idea of maybe we clump some of the stories together and have it more like Aaliyah you know maybe three or four stories than more Aaliyah uh, because you know, you felt like there was too much repetition happening some of the sections to be cut and also to clump them together like that would just have us with Aaliyah longer. And I think that was a very astute note. And I think it's one of the reasons the, the Aaliyah stuff works and we kind of come to know her and feel close to her in a certain way. Um, but, but Aaliyah is the one that I, you know, do, do feel the kind of closest you to. Do, yeah. uh, she's not a persona for me necessarily uh, in any real way, but um, it is just some, the person who I kept rewriting and just was like always trying to, uh, kind of get us close to in a manner of speaking. Um, uh, I, so, it, you know, it, there are certain things that she does, like she's the character who kind of is the most um, um, in her head in a manner of speaking and like, has the most difficult, a lot of thematic um, strain in a certain aspect is that she has a sort of distance from the world. And then that, and a sort of distance that she holds from uh the people she encounters and that of course so she has a certain distance from reality and, and as the story progresses that distance becomes instead of being sort of a comforting coping mechanism it starts to become a kind of a horrifying uh, nightmare like as it as it becomes more and more pronounced in particular uh, ways and so weirdly although there's characters in this book there's like three or four characters that are named Jonathan Ball <laughs> you know and then there's this author who's speaking to you there's 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 um uh, outside of that, you know, like m- overall, Ali is the character I actually identify the most with and not the Jonathan Ball characters, except there is sort of a, a place where the actual title story, The Lightning of Possible Storms, is a bit of a shock and a plot twist. And that those two pages, the quote unquote 
story to lightning of possible storms. I think those are the two best pages I've ever written. And that's the sort oh. of moment where I feel maybe the closest to a character, uh, like a person who's speaking, which is ostensibly supposed to be me at that moment. But, yeah. okay. you know, there's always that weird speaker distance, but, it, but, it, but it, I think those are the, other than that sort of moment, uh, those two pages there, it would certainly be Aaliyah. Okay. I'm going to get to a couple of questions out there, but one more, one more question first, which is I, uh, I called up Jane Hazel of Book Hug, who I admire and adore, and I'm so grateful for them publishing some of the only truly innovative fiction, um, I think, in this country. There's a few other presses, but they're, they're pretty consistent. I asked them why they chose this book, and one of the things they said was, each story is a separate narrative that can be enjoy, enjoyed on its own, but they've been pulled together so they can be read as a larger narrative that somehow exists outside of the book itself, an existence that grows in the mind of the reader. As a result, there is a really unique relationship between author and art that was rather alien to us, so we had to publish it. And I thought that was uh, quite nice. We've got a question here from uh, Carmelo Militano, and it, it refers to something earlier that you said, and I don't remember, you were discussing your dissatisfaction. Yeah. And uh, we have the question, Carmelo asks, does your dissatisfaction include a length of the book or even the short story? Well, so one of the things, so Poe wrote an essay, a famous essay, of course, called The Philosophy of Composition, is about his poem, The Raven. And one of the things he says in The Philosophy of Composition is, Poe claims that there's no such thing as a good novel, uh, because you can't sit down and read a novel without getting up. Uh, he, you know, he complains that the whole only reason to write fiction or poetry or to write something in Poe's point of view uh, is to... Uh, get this sort of atmospheric effect uh, going. And he claims that as soon as you break the atmosphere, like as soon as you, you put the thing down, uh, which of course, you know, he claims you have to do for a longer narrative. You know, people just don't sit down and read for four hours, uh, or five hours, six hours. So he, he claims that the short story is really the only form other than the poem where you can build um, this sort of unified effect uh, throughout. So I don't really fully agree with that, I mean, I, I prefer novels and I like going in and out of stories and so on, but I do kind of understand what he's talking about in terms of uh, the atmosphere thing. And especially as a person who um, sees himself as primarily working in a sort of weird experimental horror vein, like I don't always do that, but or at least it's not recognizable always when I'm doing that. Um, but I'm very interested in a sort of visceral, I'm really interested in combining like, um, kind of experimental meta, you know, unusual techniques with a kind of visceral reaction. Like I don't want it to be cold and clinical and analytic. I want it to be kind of, I want you to kind of feel comfortable and then to kind of go for your throat in, in a certain sense. Like I just want to keep alternating between uh, those sorts of positions. And it's hard to do the longer things go. So I tend to write short, uh, either write short stories or I write short chapters. I write, you know, I like to write poetic sequences, you know, like things that are not too long, but not too short. When I'm working on a longer piece, like, I, you know, I've got some novels in, in, that I'm working on and so on. But I, again, I'm always kind of paring the chapters down in particular ways and trying to get really specific effects before you have to stop. Like I want to control when you pick it up and put it down and, and, do, and have like a, certain control or at least a suggestible 
way I'm kind of leading you through things. So part of, partly though, to go back to the question, like it, it is a bit of a thing where, again, I want kind of to have a cake and eat it too. Like I want it to be very, I want to be able to write a long piece, like a book length piece, but, but be able to segment it and almost kind of lead you through how, for, through reading it. Like I want to almost control where, when you put it down and come back to it. Uh, or at least, and, and so on and so forth, as much as I could. So um, one of the things I like about short fiction is uh, the the ability to kind of have that unity and achieve those effects very quickly. Um, uh, but in a longer work, I, I find like I'm trying to do, basically I'm trying to write like short story-esque, use short story techniques in, in a kind of longer uh, form. If that makes sense, I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but it, but it is a dissatisfaction that I have. Is the longer and longer I write, like the longer the piece gets, the more I feel like I'm starting to. Um, there's too many places where you could put it down that I don't control. <laughs> if that makes sense. Whereas if I if I like stop and there's like dead space for yeah. half a page, you'll put it down then. And I'll sometimes rewrite things so they spill over a page. And you see the space, and I'll try to control like how things lay it on the page sometimes, wow. okay. just to kind of get some control about like when people are picking it up. Because because you if you've had the experience of reading a novel, every once in a while you'll flip ahead and see well, how many pages are left in this chapter, right? Yeah. And then you'll decide on that that basis whether you should keep reading. Um, and I want to control those sorts of things, so I want to be like aware of like if it's getting sort of if it's too blocky or too slow, then I want to, it to be like over in a page uh, or something. You know, like I want to like, I'm very conscious of how I, wow. people are moving physically through these books and trying to engineer them. I have never heard a writer say that before or anything like that. So it's very, very interesting. I hope that, I think that was a great answer. Suzette Mayer, a wonderful writer, has a question here. She says, I find that this short story collection is very funny, but I definitely noticed an undercurrent of sadness, maybe even a kind of futility. How deliberate were you in your crafting of tone in the stories? Yeah, well, uh, that's a great question, Suzette. And Suzette, you know, uh, by the way, was my uh, PhD supervisor uh, when I was working in Calgary and has been very kind to me. And it's, you know, my, big, my biggest booster in many respects. Um, but, but to kind of go to that question, um, I really like, um, I, I, what I really like as an author is, people not being sure what I'm doing. So I like to kind of establish a certain tone. And then as soon as I feel it's getting fixed, I try to like start pulling away from it in secret way, like laying the groundwork for a sudden shift away from it um, or starting to undermine it a little bit. So like, I like to, um, if I'm being very funny, then I want to couple it with horror or sadness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in terms of a te of technique, technique, uh, uh, and for a couple of reasons, one is I think just horror and comedy to me are kissing cousins in a manner of speaking. Like I think feel they're very much two sides of a coin, okay. uh, and and they use a lot of the same techniques. So uh, I always like to point to excess. Uh, so I was talking about the birds, like in, in the birds, the movie, the birds by Hitchcock, there's this great scene where um, one of the main characters is sitting on this park bench and there's, you know, a playground near her and she kind of behind her on the playground, like one crow lands, then like another crow lands, another crow lands. And it's normal to a certain point. Yeah. Then all of a sudden there's too many crows there. 
uh, like it moves into an excess. There's too many now, like out of some magic number is too many. And then it's horrible. It's horrifying and nightmarish that there's too many. Uh, and that's a sort of this weird tipping point. Uh, at a certain point, it, it's moving into that nightmare space because of the excess. But if you were to make a spoof of the birds, you know, the Leslie Nielsen version of the birds, you would just add more birds. Uh, like at a certain point, it becomes ridiculous how many birds there are. Uh, if you just keep adding birds, it gets horrifying, more and more and more horrifying. But then at one certain point, there's some magic point where you add one more bird, and now it's ridiculous how many birds. It's funny. It's not scary at all anymore. So I feel like there's a technical manner in which the two, like, polar op what we think of as two polar opposites, like horror and comedy, you know, or even just, you know, humor and sadness. Like, I feel like there's, there's this technical point where one starts to spill over into the other. And I'm really interested in those sorts of points where like mm -hmm. we're in like a in-between space or this kind of liminal position uh those sorts of boundary crossing moments really interest me in a couple uh, interest like philosophical ways but also it, on this you know just more personal level uh i find it just is a is, it, if i get you into that space uh, as a reader uh where you're not where you're, again, if, it's kind, if I can get you to this kind of in-between space where you're not really sure whether you should be scared or be, think it's funny, uh, if you're kind of unsettled or uncertain, then I can, I can do all sorts of things to you in that vulnerable position. <laughs> so like, that's when I can be really revealing and honest. Like as soon as you, as I pack the lies high enough, and, and one of the things I do in this book a lot is I'm trying to just layer artifice uh, up. Mm -hmm. And, and as... Um, uh, my friend Guy Madden, uh, you know, has kind of taught me through his work. Um, the more artifice you stack up, the more obviously artificial what you're doing is, um, and the more clearly manufactured what you're doing is, the more people don't expect honesty, uh, and they don't expect directness, wow. and they don't expect sincerity, and so their defenses are down. And so you can be really, that's the moment where you can actually be sincere. Uh, if it makes sense. And you can actually drop the irony uh, because otherwise everyone's so ready for irony. You know, once you stack irony on them till they're drowning, that's the point where they're so, uh, they're just not ready for you to say something real. And so it, it can actually transmit, you know, in a weird sort of way. Yeah. Uh, whereas otherwise they're suspicious of it. So I feel like it's just a way that I'm kind of, again, trying to almost, um, I think in a weird way, the best way to be direct and honest in, in art is to make it very clearly art uh, and not try to put the pretense that I'm otherwise like honesty and directness becomes this whole, you know, fake thing as we see all the time on social media. I think uh, Patricia Highsmith is one of my favorite writers um, plays with that yeah. as well too, to some degree. And she also has, you've got your, um, caterpillars and uh, Hitchcock has his birds and she has her snails and the things are horrifying and comical at the same time and at some point you just get confused about whether you're revulsed or just think this is nuts. Tony Burgess who is a writer that both you and I admire a lot uh, has a question here uh, he says hey hi Tony um, did you find a master structure intention to novelize the parts what was the key to that Parts of having more to do with something beyond them or, and then he says, you're kind of answering my question now as you talk, but do you want to, do you find a master structure intention to novelize the parts? What was the key to that? The parts having more to do with something beyond them. 
I think the key is, so I can ask that question partially, uh, of course, Tony, but I think the key to it in many ways is it, it, when I was at, over the years looking at your, your, your books, Tony, the thing that I like the most about your work is um, if people, if people don't know Tony Burgess's work, one of the things that is to, I wrote the introduction for uh, a book called the Beauty Med. Uh, Beauty Mayhem, which is a collection of uh, Tony's first three books, including uh, uh, Pontypool Changes Everything, which is his most well-known book because it was made of that Pontypool movie. Um, uh, but one of the things I note in that introduction is what I like about uh, horror stories is their obsession with reality and um, what is real, what isn't real, what is true, what is not true. One of the things that's interesting to me about the horror story is this kind of reality obsession. Um, but one of the things I dislike about horror stories is stylistically, they tend to be written in a very direct and straightforward manner. And to me, if these things are so horrible, it should be hard to talk about them. Uh, and it's and what I like about Tony's work is that as terrible things are happening, the actual story, actually telling you the story, the actual narrative voice that is telling you the story starts to break down in particular ways. And the way that Tony has put it in, uh, in his talks is it's as if the, he wants to get a story that's told from a deteriorating consciousness. And mm -hmm. I really, so anyway, that, um, that quality that I like in, in Tony's books is something that kind of was a bit of a lodestone for me. So where I was trying to really get, as we were kind of going through this book, uh, particularly for Aaliyah, but also sometimes in the stories themselves, but especially for Aaliyah, uh, it, the reality structure starts to really break down incrementally and becomes less and less clear yeah. what is actually happening here. Um, the thing I always say when I teach uh, your books, Tony, is I teach Pontypool sometimes, and I say to people, "There's, an, you know, there are there are pages on Pontypool. What I don't know if a character is if two characters are." watching TV or killing each other. <laughs> and, you know, as much as I've studied that book, there's like a page or two where I'm, it's a bit uncertain to me still. Um, and I like that kind of, uh, but it kind of works if there, if both things could, could work perfectly well in that position, you know, the way the book is, um, because one is just as horrible as the other in some respects, you know, watching TV and, you know, and slaughtering one another, um, you know, under certain conditions, they both have this sort of abject quality. Uh, so, I, so anyway, I was just trying to mimic that thing that you do, just using different tools and techniques, but, but that sort of thing where as the progression, as we're getting to the novel, to the book's end, where things should be coming clearer, like normally, uh, as the story goes on, less and less mystery, right? Uh, so I was just trying to increase the mystery and increase some of the questions, uh, but in a way where people wouldn't be dissatisfied they would feel like they're getting closer to the heart of what the book is um, on a sort of uh, emotional level. Yeah. And that's sort of crystallizing, even as on the plot level, things are starting to really fall apart. I, I thought that whole trajectory was magnificent. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, you, you blew up the book. It was, it was very, very exciting. Yeah, literally in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Oh, we, have, we have two more questions and I have one more um, quick question because we should probably end in the next five or six minutes. Uh, Peter Norman, another poet and novelist, uh, writes, you mentioned Hitchcock and I have a fascinating talk on a particular technique seen in the birds. As a practitioner uh, and writer about cinema, can you say anything further about film's influence on interaction with your non-film-related writing? Uh, 
Sure. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I did a lot of film studies in my university career and, um, and I've done some, you know, work, you know, film work in various degre degrees. I, I actually directed and wrote a short film that I sold to the Comedy Network once at one point. Um, uh, and, and for a little bit, wrote, wrote some true crime scripts for a show that I don't think ever really got made or got aired. It was sold, but then there's a whole thing. With, you know, the company got destroyed for tax evasions and stuff. But um, anyway, um, to kind of go to your question, I I'm really influenced heavily, I feel, by particular filmmakers, especially David Lynch. What I like about David Lynch in particular is, uh, yeah, Spoonie B, exactly. Uh, that was the Comedy Network one, Peter, that I sold, uh, Spoonie B. But um, what I did, um, David Lynch is the particular person who uh, whose work I like He's not maybe my favorite filmmaker necessarily, but he's one of the people who uh, I think has really gotten to the heart of what I find interesting about story. Because if you watch a Lynch film, often, you know, so, so I always used to use the example of Mulholland Drive. If you watch the film Mulholland Drive or even Lost Highway, you know, my two favorite Lynch films in many ways. If you watch those two films front to back, uh, there's not really any way to say what the story is. Uh, it's so disjointed and disconnected from one scene to the other. You can kind of try to connect them, but there's really a way in which there's no, there's no possible way to clearly articulate what is the story in a clear, direct fashion. It's very wild and it's hard to understand like how maybe one thing is feeding into another. But if you go scene by scene, uh, each individual scene makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it may be confusing on a certain level, but scene by scene, the structure makes sense. Uh, and when he starts to string the scenes together, the structure starts to fall apart to a certain degree. What I think Lynch has hit on is Lynch has made a, has figured out that if you do, if you make it feel like a movie and do certain formal things, like if you have a character fall asleep and then you have something happen that seems like a dream and then you have a character wake up, it doesn't really matter what the content of that stuff is. Um, he does like certain formal tricks and, he, and it looks like a movie. It feels like a movie. It pulls us along like it's a movie, uh, but it really isn't operating like a movie in many respects. Um, and what he's almost done is sort of figured out that if you have the structure of a story, like if you kind of take the narrative, it, it, he'll have a very traditional narrative structure in many respects, he'll do almost a hero's journey type of structure, but all the content he'll just almost arbitrarily fill in. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a kind of a weird, brilliant trick. And so what I've, what I've kind of like learned to think from Lynch and, and uh, some other filmmakers as well, but like, especially Lynch is that if you can just kind of set a, if you can just kind of figure out what, what is the minimum quantity that the audience requires to buy in um, emotionally to this thing. And once you kind of give them that, deliver that minimum quantity uh, and just keep that promise, then you can really play around on this other level. You know, if it feels like there's a beginning and middle and ending, then it doesn't almost matter what is in the beginning or middle or ending, as long as there's an escalation. So if there's like one, you know, soda can in the first act, there's gotta be you know, two soda cans in the three act, for second act, and then a punctured soda can in the in the third act. You know what I mean? Like if you have that structure, it feels like a story. 
even if what mm-hmm. you're looking at doesn't make sense. And so I don't go so far into like uh, surrealism or, or non-realism that there is no sense. Like it's often very logical what I'm doing in many mm-hmm. respects. Yeah. But I like to kind of like play at that level of, um, I, I like to really play around at that level of sense and like to really play with the structure of things in, in a particular way. So to me, like what I've it's just kind of sum that up in some ways. To me, I just really uh, focus on structural elements and like getting the architecture of the thing. And I'll write, rewrite stuff to find what's the structure of the architecture. And once I have that architecture figured out and that kind of book structure in place, um, then I get really wild inside of it. It almost doesn't, once the architecture works, it almost doesn't matter what's inside mm. of it in a certain way. Nice. I'm just going to throw in that uh, one of my greatest influences, me, probably my greatest influence, the greatest influence of my writing was Robin Wood, uh, who was sure. a friend of mine, professor at Atkinson College, York University, and one of the most brilliant thinkers who really taught me how to read and write. And he's been a huge influence. And he taught a great course on Hitchcock. We've yeah. got one more question. Great book on Hitchcock. On, on the screen. And then I'm going to ask you one more quick thing. And then we're going to end off. Uh, Lisa Muirhead says, your craft and the your craft and the control you like to maintain over your writing and over your readers sounds very intentional. How often does your writing surprise you? And are those moments of sincerity you preserve for your reader? Is it hard to protect those surprising moments through the work of shaping your writing? Great question. So yes, it is a good question. So one of the things that I am always trying to be to be aware of and to check in editing is I have this um, perfectionist streak, you know, uh, and again, I want have this sort of, I want things to be a certain way, um, almost like an obsessive kind of quality to it in, in, a, in a certain sense. So I do a lot of like planning. I do a lot of outlining. I will try to draft and I'll kind of go back and analyze the draft. I'm always on guard because I know it's my tendency. I'm on guard for, is there a moment where, it's getting too controlled and too clinical and it's going to become too analytic and it's going to start to feel cold and dead and clinical and, and so on. And so I'm always very aware that I don't want to get into that space, but that's almost like where my process will lead me if I don't put checks and balances into it. So one of the things that I, so I'll do like have certain things I'll do to try to prevent me my those tendencies from taking over. So for example, one of the things I'll do is I'll outline before I write a story, I'll typically like outline it, even if I'm just like, you know, point form noticing it. And then I'll start like following that outline. But if by the end of the story, I have written exactly what I plan to write, then I will go back and then I'll start throwing it away. Uh, so if it, I'll plan out and I'll think very deeply through what exactly should it be. But if I actually follow the map, uh, to the precise place where I thought I should end up, then I'll know that I did something wrong uh, because that structure, uh, yes, maybe I want to plan and follow and find that structure, but once I have the structure, I should be able to really go crazy on, I, I can't, I don't want to be controlled. Um, I don't want to be too controlled. Uh, you know, I want just enough control that I know it will work and then I want to just go kind of crazy inside of that uh, structure. If it, so I, I need there to be moments. So I'll just do, so things, I'll do things like 
I'll just put Shakespeare's cast list for King Lear in there. And then I'll start looking up like, what are words that, and phrases that Shakespeare invented? I'll just start to seed them in. Like, how, how can I write? I'll make a rule. Like, I've got to write a scene between these two guys where all he, the one dude does is quote Shakespeare and the other person keeps like calling him on it, um, right? Like, so I'll have like, so I know, for example, there's a, like, I have the architecture. There, there will be a scene here where this person and this person come into conflict around this thing. But then I'll try to like, once I have that, what is the checklist that it has to be to like make the story work? Then I'll think, okay, what's the craziest way I could fill in this checklist? Like, I won't, I'll try to not do anything normal. <laughs> and I, and if I had a plan, I'll try to throw the plan away the second I get there, as long as I'm still going through the checklist. So I know things will actual op, actually operate and I'll get what I need out of the scene. But I want it at the surface level to really start breaking down. I almost want it to not work. If that mm -hmm. makes sense, I'll try to like sabotage my own structure. Like once I have a structure that I know will work, I'll try to sub sabotage it. And if I get right to the verge of it collapsing, I feel like I'm in a, a good spot. Wow. This is beautiful. That makes sense. About your work. Oh yeah. Um, I just going to ask you more question here. I, I see so much sort of cookie cutter fiction out there that gets published, um, Canada, us, et cetera. Anyway, it's, um, it's kind of exasperating. <laughs> Do you have any theories on why there is so little experimental fiction out there in contrast maybe to, you know, there's a lot of experimental poetry, uh, but fiction, like what the hell is going to happen to Canadian literature, Jonathan Ball? You know, it's a good question because if you actually jump back to like the 60s or 70s even, um, you just had a lot more of it, right? You know, uh, mm. uh, in compared to say now. Whereas I think it's just moved around. Like, honestly, I don't, I don't feel like there's not there. I think it's just moved into different places. So like, because of market forces. So right now I feel like the most interesting stuff is happening in horror because in the horror genre, um, and I specifically will, I'll look at horror film as an example. So for example, in horror film, you don't need a star. Uh, you don't need necessarily the budget that you otherwise have. Uh, you have an audience that's trained to accept extreme material. In fact, they hunger for extreme material. And so there's a certain level at which they demand a, a certain amount of risks. Um, and there's just a sort of, there's a market force, a set of market forces there that allows for experimentation in a way that, say, mainstream film does not anymore. It used to be you had these independent films and that kind of market has collapsed in some respects uh it's sort of but in some ways it's moved to like streaming services but not quite right because it just isn't the money there that people think there is right. so i think like in some way in fiction in, i think a lot of the experimentalism has basically um weirdly has gone to the genre markets if you actually look at the genre markets i find them more risky uh, i find like genre fiction horror sci-fi uh, and and so on uh to be more experimental than like Jeff Vandermeer is a person that I think you can point to as here's a guy who is not really doing anything approaching mainstream fiction at all. Mm -hmm. uh, he's kind of had a bit of crossover success, but really, you know, uh, that's where this stuff has gone in the modern marketplace. I find it weird, you know, that, the, that traditionally the sort of literary establishment has seeded its actual 
literary qualities to the genre markets in, in a weird sort of way. Mm -hmm. And you'll see now the authors have really caught on to that. And you're starting to see like Nayla Hopkinson move into comics and writing Sandman comics, you know, and, and you start to see Carmen Maria Machado has done, uh, uh, did a, a DC uh, comic story for Hill House uh, comics. Like, I just feel like it's just moved around. And yeah. now in the main, and, and now the mainstream uh, literary establishment is so afraid uh, because of, you know, just how thin the profit margins are to take these risks that the genre markets are taking, but they have more ability to do it because of the, the pay in a manner of speaking. So, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, I just feel like it's just kind of shifted around. I don't feel like fiction is worse now. In many ways, I think it's, it's really increased. I just think that uh, it's just gotten more conservative in the kind of literary mainstream. Okay, that was a fascinating analysis, and I hope you'll read my next romance novel. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, sure. we're gonna we're gonna wind it up. And I just want to mention this is the book right here, and uh, John Caves of McNally Robinson is gonna pop up in a moment and say a few words and tell you how you can get hold of this book. And uh, congratulations, Jonathan, and what a pleasure to work with you. And thanks to everyone who's uh, joined us tonight. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it, and. Uh, Thanks, John. Absolutely, and thank you both. That was a really fascinating conversation. Um, I'll close by pointing out in the spirit of naked capitalism as befits the book, uh, copies of The Lightning of Possible Storms are available from McNally Robinson booksellers, either online, over the phone, or in person. We also mail out books far and wide, if you're so inclined. This event was streaming via YouTube and a recording will remain if you'd like to revisit the conversation or pass the link along to someone who was unable to attend. Uh, in closing, many thanks once again to our good friends at BookHug for publishing this work and some of the finest and most interesting uh, literature, poetry, and nonfiction that's coming out in Canada today uh, for helping to organize this launch. Uh, to Stuart Ross uh, for hosting, it was a great pleasure to have you on board. And of course, to Jonathan Ball. Here's wishing everyone out there a really wonderful night. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah,